Do you ever want to be a guest on a super cool podcast hosted by a glamorous power couple from their cutting-edge home studio on the outskirts of a major metropolitan world hub? Hollywood, anyone? Us, too. Until then, let's pretend. One of these days, you might get a DM, a PM, an EM, or even a message in a bottle inviting you to join my husband and I for an hour or two in our chat lab, working on solutions for all the world's problems. And when you are invited, there's only one response. Yeah, uh-huh. His name is Charles Lindbergh, and he has flown the Atlantic alone. The most famous man of his time, Lindbergh shuns the public eye. As privately as is possible, he courts the beautiful Anne Morrow, daughter of an American ambassador. Soon the couple is married, and in 1930, their first child is born. It is a boy named Charles Augustus Lindbergh, Jr. As the son of a national hero, he is famous and adored, but his life is doomed. for joining us on Yamaha with Lisa and Phil. This week, we are once again talking to J.T. Townsend of Murder Podcast fame. He's a professor. He is an educator. He is an investigator. Welcome to the podcast, J.T. Well, that's, some, that's a lot of credentials to live up to there. <laughs> you don't have to. We I won't hold you accountable. What I am most is a citizen detective. An armchair detective, citizen detective. I used to say armchair, but armchair detectives don't go out to visit crime scenes or interview people. Mm. Just a puzzle in their mind. So I'm a citizen detective, I'd say. Gotcha. Yeah, we we just started watching a TV show starring um, Steve Martin, Martin Short, and uh, the girl. What's her? uh, Selena Gomez. Gomez. And it's really, really, it's really kind of fascinating to us. Uh, murders going on in an apartment building. Right. Uh, murders, uh, only murders in our, in a, in the high rise or something to that effect. Okay. Yeah. I have not seen that. And I mean, they're currently investigating a murder. What they don't know is that the girl is investigating a second murder. But you are our first return guest. Yes. And I have to tell Welcome you, back. the first episode History. was uh, very popular. You know, we mm-hmm. know the numbers. We don't judge up there. Bill, I don't believe that. <laughs> oh, yeah. I, I think it's in it's the... It's our uh, most popular podcast so far. The leader in the clubhouse, so to speak. Yep. Get, out of, get out of town. Come on. Uh, yeah, thank you. So we had to have you back. Yeah. Um, again, this is a very complex case tonight. How do you want to start this? Well, we, I'm glad you brought it up because I think that uh, my first exposure to it was when I saw an In Search Of episode when I was a kid. And a lot of my curiosities kind of evolved from that program. With Leonard Nimoy? Yeah. yeah. Boy, he ran out of things to go looking for eventually, but I like <laughs> yeah. I love the music and everything. It really kind of put a chill up your spine. Uh, yes. Yeah. And yeah. the subject was the Lindbergh baby, the kidnapping and eventual murder of Charles Lindbergh II, I guess. Indeed. Yeah. Junior. Mm-hmm. March 1st, 1932. I guess that may have been the, the day he was abducted. Maybe you can correct me on that. That is indeed the day I, he was abducted. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, do we need to maybe do some quick background here? I think I think this the, the Lindbergh baby kidnap murder. It, this is maybe the greatest mystery in American crime history, and that's despite the fact that there was someone convicted and executed for the crime. I find that stunning. We had a a, a, a lone man, Bruno Richard Hauptman, convicted and executed despite the fact that up until his capture, almost three years after the crime, no investigators believed that one man could have single-handedly carried out this crime. How about that? Yeah, that's uh, quite a a mystique around it. I mean, uh, Mm -hmm. almost um, 
fertile really, ground for speculation right from the beginning. It really is. Let me give you a, a, a quick statistical aberration to compare it to. Mm-hmm. In the 1990s, the FBI studied 1,700 child kidnappings for ransom in that decade, mm-hmm. 1,700. In only one case, one case was the child found murdered in their own home, and that was John Bonet Ramsey. Mm-hmm. Hmm. One case. So yeah. the John Bonet Ramsey case stands alone. Yes. I think Lindbergh stands alone for the same reason. Mm-hmm. Yes, so. I mean, he was found on their own property. Off, It was so off the chain. And yeah. let's talk about a theory I have called... It's called uh, prime constraint theory. And you look for a factoid in a crime that all other facts have to be funneled through. They have to pass through this fact. And in Lindbergh, it's very simple. But if you think about it, 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 it becomes very interesting. The family, the baby was kidnapped on a Tuesday night from the home in Hopewell, New Jersey. Now, that home was under construction. Lindbergh, his wife, the child, and servants had only been staying there on weekends. During the week, they were staying at Ann Morrow's parents' house in Englewood. But for the first time ever, Phil and Lisa, they stayed past Sunday night because the baby had a cold. So they were there Monday and Tuesday, and the child was kidnapped on Tuesday night, and only a handful of people knew that they would be at that house on a Tuesday night. Right. 10 to 15 people. That wasn't their normal. Not at all. This was a complete break from their pattern. And who knew they were going to be there? And people seem to ignore this fact, but you can't ignore it. This was a remote location. I've been there. And only Lindbergh, his wife, the three servants there at the Hopewell house and the servants at the the, uh, Morrow house knew they were going to be there on a Tuesday night. And, oh, that's, and maybe her that's parents? the child is kidnapped. Mm-hmm. So definitely oh, had the, yeah. the earmarks of uh, an, an inside job, I guess you'd say. It's definitely it strange. It's odd, doesn't it? That yes. A tiny group of people knew they were going to be there. There was no reason for them to be there that Tuesday night. Their pattern for months had been stay only on the weekend. Mm-hmm. And the house mm-hmm. wasn't really ready yet. Right. Um, yard was just a muddy field and yet of this handful of people that knew this information somehow someone got in there picked the right window of the child's nursery and how did they know that mm-hmm. took this 40 pound child down a rickety ladder in a in mm-hmm. a dark stormy rainy muddy night mm-hmm. right i don't know that that dog hunts okay yeah that's, that's what they'd like you to believe right because, like, if you were thinking that it was somebody there to rob the place or, or something that was somebody was there to do something else, kidnapping is not the type of crime that someone chooses no, not um, you know, as an alternate. That's not a spur of the moment alternate uh, option. Yeah, especially with you know, if I if I if a gang was going to steal that child, why would mm-hmm. they do it between eight and ten? When the five humans and the watchdog in the house were roaming around, I'd go in at 2 a.m., wouldn't you? Yeah. You wouldn't find the child missing until 7 or 8, and you got a six-hour head start. Right. I'd go in there at the busiest time of the evening. And how could the kidnapper have picked the only window in the entire house with a broken shutter that didn't lock? And why was that the child's room? Yes, exactly. It It was one of the three windows in the nursery I've stood in that nursery. I've stood in the two bathrooms. Mm-hmm. Ann Morrow's bathroom was right next to the nursery. It shared a door. Mm-hmm. Uh, the maid, her bathroom was just down the hall. And both women were in and out of those bathrooms constantly between mm-hmm. 8 and 10 that night. Nobody heard nothing. And somebody took that child between 8 and 10 with people very nearby. And, and again, I've been in that house. I did some sound experiments. Boy. How nobody heard anything is beyond me. Yeah. I mean, there's not even any mud on the floor. And it was it was absolutely a quagmire outside. There was no muddy yeah. foot. Lindbergh is in his study right below the nursery. He doesn't yeah. hear the ladder going up. He doesn't hear the stomping of the kidnapper right above his head. Yeah. Do you see the problems with this already? Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, who was the last person that saw the child? 
alive. Well, it was nursemaid Betty Gow. Now Lindbergh called that night mm-hmm. on Tuesday from New York and said he wanted the child put to bed at eight and no one was disturbed the child until 10 because hmm. I don't want my son coddled, but yet you've, you've, you've stayed two more days in Hopo because he had a cold mm-hmm. and, and he was very clear about this. No one is to enter the nursery between eight and 10. And that's when this child was taken. Hmm. Yeah. That's uh that's a little suspicious. It's just a strange instruction to kind of throw in there. Ostensibly is something that you would not, you know, it wouldn't have standing yeah. order like every night. No, it was not <laughs> at all. Um, mm-hmm. seemed, seemed very odd to me. Let's talk about Charles Lindbergh very quickly. Mm-hmm. Why do we think this guy was a hero? We, I don't. Well, thank you, Lisa. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he was just a bush pilot. He he entered this contest to get $10,000 to be the first solo flight from um, the United States to Europe. There were several other crews you know, mm-hmm. nonstop flight. Um, he was not the best pilot. And if Lindbergh had failed, let's just say he'd crashed in the ocean on this mm-hmm. flight, one of these other teams would have accomplished this feat within a matter of days. Mm-hmm. So what he did was going to, it was going to be done one way or the other, but he did yeah. it. I love what a friend of his wife said about him. If he hadn't mm-hmm. made the flight, he'd be running a gas station in Minnesota. he was not not a remarkable man and evidence would suggest he was a racist misogynist man of the times who never took advice from anyone but himself he was obsessed with order routine and privacy and possibly eugenics so we'll we'll skewer this this hero thing right now this guy was a deeply flawed individual who just happened to do this incredible flight first Mm -hmm. when there were other people lined up to do it within a day or two. And I'll give the guy some points. Um, 33 and a half hours flight time, and he'd been up for 13 more. He was up for 50 hours straight. Wow. After being awake for 20 hours, he spent 33 and a half in the cockpit. So I'll give the, I'll give the guy some points there. But this is the stuff that heroes are made of? Because nobody knew this man. Nobody knew anything about him. Well, so, and they've made him a hero because rah, 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 flag, flag, flag. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And right. and when flaws became apparent, they had a tendency to sweep those flaws under the Watergate porch. They absolutely did. And oh. Lindbergh protected his privacy very extensively. Mm-hmm. That's why he was building this house in Hopewell. You know, my wife and I were there in 2013 and we got close enough and my GPS went haywire. Mm-hmm. It's re- it was remote in 2013. Imagine right. it in 1932. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What's wow. out there, man? There is nothing out there. Mm. I saw uh, a documentary, an episode of Nova, where they had John Douglas. Um, uh, yeah. The case. yeah. And yeah, John Douglas. Yeah. And then, and Douglas is the FBI profiler that yes, made famous on the man, uh, Mindhunter on Netflix. And what did John Douglas say, Phil? Well, he, he believes that Hauptman did it, that he was a lone culprit, that he, that he orchestrated mm-hmm. it and played all the roles of, uh, and, and actually wrote all the ransom notes. There were multiple ransom notes, and orchestrated the whole thing by himself. That's what he concluded. Now, I have to question. I'm sorry, JT. Um, Go you've gone in and out just a little bit a couple times. So if we okay. interrupt you, it's not on purpose. Just so you know. I mean, but I have to wonder because apparently this man's wife was saying that he had an alibi right from the beginning and she stuck to that. She never let that go. An alibi? Yeah. The, I was, we were, we heard something to that effect earlier today that, but Hauptman's wife. Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yes, yes. You know, yes. gave him an alibi. Right. I mean, I don't know. You know, maybe they didn't credit it because it was a woman, or because it was his wife. Let's talk about that for a minute, Lisa. And that's a great mm-hmm. point. Hauptman was in the habit of every Tuesday night picking his wife up at the bakery where she worked. He would drive there and pick her up every Tuesday, and she claimed 
swore on a stack of Bibles. He came and picked me up on the Tuesday night of the kidnapping. Now, if he's in that bakery that night, he's two hours away from Hopewell, New Jersey, where the child was kidnapped. Not only his wife placed him there, but four other people did. Um, the one that got me was um, Houtman was walking a dog that the bakery owner had, a German shepherd, and a guy confronted him. He thought it was his dog that was missing. And he followed Houtman back to the bakery, his wife the, and a customer and the manager are there. And then the guy said, oh, you're right. That's not my dog. These people all testified and placed Houtman in that bakery. But know this about, um, oh boy, her first name just went right out of my head, Houtman's wife. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mrs. Uh, Houtman. <laughs> Mrs. Houtman. Mm-hmm. She swore to her dying day. He picked her up that night, which mm-hmm. which makes it impossible for him to be in Hopewell. Right. People, that, people that said, oh, she'd lie for him about anything. Consider mm-hmm. this. During the trial, the defense attorney said mm-hmm. it would be really beneficial to Richard. And that's what she called him, Richard Houtman. If mm-hmm. you said that he told you about the ransom money that he had, if he told you he had it. And she said, mm-hmm. I'm not going to lie for him. He didn't tell me about the money. This was the $14,000 of Lindbergh right. found in his garage, which mm-hmm. remains the best evidence against Houtman. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, Mrs. Houtman just said, I'm not going to lie for him. He did not tell me about that money. Mm-hmm. But she swore he was at that bakery. Yeah. Absolutely swore. And I believe her. Yeah, me too. So I she- just, it, no. So she just went cherry picking. And it picking. would be too she easy actually, to plant that money. They sort of established her, her integrity. It is that she told the truth about one thing mm-hmm. or about both things potentially, but they, you know, one uh, defended him and the other kind of implicated him. So. And then I have to ask. But the overriding one, vindic- you know, yeah. cleared him. So. I, I, on that one, I have to ask you, how would the money, how would her knowing about this ransom money help him? Anna Hopman. <laughs> okay. Anne Morrow and Anna Hopman. I'm sorry. Okay. That's all right. I'm sorry, Lisa. What was that again, please? Okay. How would, I mean, in what fantasy world was him having told her about the ransom money going to assist his defense? Well, it, it, it's a matter of what that money represents. And at some point, we should probably cover some basic details. There were two crimes here. There was the kidnapping and murder of Charles Lindbergh Jr. in New Jersey. And there was the extortion of ransom money in New York. These are two most likely separate crimes. And that the extortion of the money probably had nothing to do with the murder of the child. Because let's remember, the Lindbergh baby was killed shortly after he was taken from that nursery. So the child is dead. We don't know that right away. But who is extorting money from Lindbergh and his wife saying they have the child, which is obviously a lie? Right. Was Houtman involved in the money extortion? Possibly. He had a pretty good story. But there's no evidence placing Houtman anywhere near Hopewell, New Jersey on March 1st, 1932. None whatsoever. So I I think you're right to to establish uh, some facts, you know, to fill in uh, a little bit of the... uh, the story here to frame Houtman, his his uh, alibi for the money was that a friend of his, and I, I want to say his name was Fish. The Fish Story. Yeah, the Fish Story. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. Let's, let's talk about Isidore Fish. In my PowerPoint that I do on Lindbergh, I actually found a photo. A lot of people think Fish didn't exist. I have a photo with Fish sitting right next to Houtman and, and Anna Houtman on a couch during one of the parties Houtman threw at his party. He's a real guy. And Fish, in um, early 1934, this is two years after the kidnapping, um, sailed to Leipzig, Germany, and paid for his uh, ticket with Lindbergh ransom money. But several witnesses said at his going away party in December of 33, and again, remember, this is a year and a half after the kidnapping. Several witnesses saw Fish hand Houtman several small boxes or parcels. Fish said, or Houtman said, Fish asked him to keep these for him till he got back. And they were business partners. They were doing business together. And Houtman said he put them up in the uh, uh, top level of a kitchen closet and forgot all about them. Now, Fish 
died in Germany in March of 34. And when Hauptmann came up with the fish alibi, the prosecution was like, oh, yeah, the guy died. That's really convenient. And Hauptmann goes, no, it's not. We could clear this up. Uh Yeah. No, the fact that he's dead is not helping me at all. Mm -mm. Listen to Hauptmann's story here. In September of 34, now, now, Phil and Lisa, this is two and a half years after the kidnapping. And, and, and remember, up until this point, all investigators believe that the Lindbergh kidnapping was by a gang of people, not one man. It's a rainy day. The closet is leaking. Houtman looks up into it and sees the boxes fish left there. I've seen a photo of this closet. If you're not up on a stool or something, you don't see what's up there. The packages were soaking wet, and Hauptman sees the gleam of money, U.S. gold certificates. And he opens these things up, and there's $14,000 there. And they're soaked. They're wet. Yeah. But let's believe Hauptman for That's a minute. That's okay. You can draw money. He's standing there. Now, Fish owes Hauptman $5,000, okay, from their business. Fish is dead. Hauptman stands there. What would you do and during the depression if suddenly there were $14,000 there? Well, I'd get my $5,000 first, I think. And maybe send the rest of it to Fish's relatives. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Hauptman did not do that. And yeah. he did not tell his wife about it. He put it in the garage. Ah. The money when found after Hauptman's arrest was soaking wet. And it was wrapped in newspapers from September of 1934. Consider that the ransom was passed in April of 1932. Now, if that money is wrapped in 1932 April newspapers, Why is I, got it a, I got a problem with Hauptman. Mm-hmm. But no, it's wrapped in current newspapers from a week ago, and the money was wet. Both those facts support Hauptman's story. Wow. Mm-hmm. And he started passing bills around his neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Now, keep in mind, Lindbergh ransom money is being passed all up and down the East and West Coast because they've marked the serial numbers all over mm-hmm. the place. But Halpin buys gas at a gas station in September of 34. And the attendant is concerned that the bill won't be any good because we've gone off the gold standard. Mm-hmm. Okay. Very smart to make the ransom money gold certificates knowing they would go out of circulation and they'd be tougher to pass. So the guy writes down Hauptman's license plate number, not because he thinks it's Lindbergh money, because he doesn't want to get stuck with a fake $10 bill. Yeah. When it comes back ransom money, they trace the license. Hauptman is dropped, arrested, bingo. And they find $14,000 in his garage, soaking wet, wrapped in current newspapers. Yeah. He is dropped. Big time. He is arrested. I love what the New York Times did. Lindbergh kidnapper arrested. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Just a guy with some of the money in my book. Yeah. yeah. Well, I heard some of those details, but the one that you brought up that I did, it was about the new date, the, the uh, timeliness of the newspaper. I had yeah. not come across that at all. And that because mm-hmm. what that that looks like a very damning piece of evidence until you take that into account. And no money was passed in Hauptman's neighborhood all through 32, 33, and until September of 34. He just started passing them, consistent with the fact that he just now found the money. And Isidore Fish was one squirrely dude. He had had, uh, tuberculosis. He had a bad cough. And the go-between in the cemetery for the ransom money said that the cemetery John had a hacking cough. Uh, Fish was known to traffic in hot money. And if you were stuck with a bunch of gold certificates, if somebody would have given you 25, 30, 35 cents on the dollar, Fish would have sold them all those gold certificates because they were starting to become worthless. So Isidore Fish is very real, very sketchy. Supposedly on his deathbed, he told his brother there was something he had to tell Houtman. Mm-hmm. Word to Richard. He died. We don't know what that was. Mm-hmm. Okay. So I'm not saying Hauptman's a saint. He should have told his wife. He should have taken his 5000 He should have sent the rest of it to Fish's family. He did none of those things. Right. Right. So that brings us to the arrest. So where do we go from here on this? Because there's so many different ways. 
Well, I, I do have a couple questions. Was Hauptmann um, involved with the Nazi party at all? No. Okay. What about a, Fish? He was an illegal immigrant who came over here in the Ooh, 20s. Illegal immigrant. Illegal immigrant. Hauptmann had a record in Germany in the 19, mm-hmm. 19, 19 and 1920 for mm-hmm. theft, including using a ladder. But guess what? The depression in Germany was so bad after World War One. People were stealing. Oh, I know. So the Nazi party didn't exist by the time he came over here. So no, okay. it was not. Here's, yeah. here's another My question. My father uh, dated a German-born woman, and I heard the tales. Here's another yeah. question about mm-hmm. Hauptmann and uh, his uh, ownership of the money. And not to get ahead of ourselves, but there's a character named Dr. John Condon who volunteered yes. his services to be the go-between between Cemetery John. Yeah, let's and, talk about let's talk about him. Yeah, and and the thing that and, and you know the the fact that Condon's name was in Houtman's garage, like jotted down. So that was actually of- it was up in a closet. Uh, that was written by a newspaper reporter. Consider this, Phil. After Houtman's arrest, the New York State Police rented his apartment. They kicked Anna and his son Manfred out. They rented that apartment for six weeks. Plenty of time to manufacture all kind of wood evidence and handwriting evidence. Oh, yeah. I find it interesting at Houtman's indictment, they didn't bring forward the wood evidence or the handwriting at all because they hadn't done them yet. But let's talk about John Condon. Okay, so Lindbergh's child is kidnapped in the middle of the night, carried down a ladder in, in a driving rainstorm way out in the middle of nowhere. Let's accept that for a minute. Lindbergh puts himself in charge of the investigation. He puts himself over Norman Schwarzkopf Sr., the head of the New Jersey State Police. And who's going to argue with Lindbergh? Really? The FBI sends two agents down to help. What does Lindbergh do? He angrily orders those agents away. He does not want any outside help. But who does help? Who does help Lindbergh? He has several gangsters come down to the estate to help him. Because Lindbergh says, my son was kidnapped by New York gangsters. Okay. No so let's call the people I think kidnapped him. Yeah. There's no proof yeah. of that at all. But that's what right. Lindbergh said. But then Condon approaches Lindbergh. Condon puts some ad in the Bronx News, his, his local newspaper, and says, I'm willing to be the go-between on the ransom money. And Lindbergh brings him on. And this guy's this, uh, he's a 70-year-old retired high school principal. He's a garrulous blowhard who just wants to be involved in the biggest story in the world. And this guy is a buffoon, but Lindbergh trusts him with the ransom drop. And what, what blows my mind is get this kids, the, the night of the ransom exchange, April, April 4th, 1932, Lindbergh and Houtman go to St. Raymond cemetery Lindbergh toward, told Schwarzkopf and the New York police, I don't want to see a single policeman anywhere near this cemetery. I will shoot any officer I see. So there is nobody staking out this cemetery. It's Condon and Lindbergh. Mm-hmm. And see several lookouts that give them the eye before mm-hmm. suddenly, through, suddenly through the darkness, they hear this sound, hey, doctor. Over here, Condon was a PhD, supposedly. Mm-hmm. Leaving Lindbergh at the car, Condon goes and sits for an hour and a half with Cemetery John and finally passes him the ransom money. Mm-hmm. John, now, takes- How long was that between the kidnapping and the ransom? About a month. See, now that's ridiculous. A little bit that's more. already suspicious. Yeah, tell me about it. And there's no cops there to follow this guy. Condon makes a horrible mistake. He tries to save Lindbergh some money. They have 70000 in ransom. He says, we can only get 50000 And he held back the package that had the $50 bills. In other words, the most visibly tracked currency. Instead of 10s and 20s, they'll be 50s. He does not give them to Cemetery John. Those would stick out. $50 gold certificates would stick out like a sore thumb. So Condon screwed up. You know, he screwed up all up and down the whole thing. Did he? I mean, did, did he screw up yeah. or was the whole thing set up? 
Condon may have been part of the gang. I mean, I mean, yeah. Or maybe he was a buffoon that could be used easily. Yeah, but the, the thing you're you're establishing that Lindbergh and Condon were in. No, I'm actually suggesting. I mean, possibly, but my real suggestion is that that Condon was a blowhard buffoon who had no real idea what he was doing and was brought in as a form of confusion. Lisa, I think you're absolutely correct. Lindbergh did everything he could to move the investigation away from the home in Hopewell and move it to New York. He, he did everything he could to move the investigation as far away from his house as he could. And he didn't want anybody smart working with him. So Condon was perfect, seriously, uh, a stooge, in my opinion. I mean, the guy was almost senile at this point. So Cemetery John gives him a note. The baby is on the boat, Nellie, in this bay. And Lindbergh and Condon go up on a plane. They're supposed to look for this boat. There's no boat. There's no baby. Mm. This is uh, in early April. And in middle part of May, a body is found in the woods halfway between Lindbergh's house and another house he had stayed at. And this body mm-hmm. was eventually identified as Charles Lindbergh Jr. Mm-hmm. So based on decomposition and, and the, the, uh, all the forensics from the body, this child mm-hmm. had died the night it was taken from the crib, had been right. dead the whole time. So are the extorters necessarily the killers? No. Mm-hmm. No, this is a this is a depression. And here's another thing Lindbergh did that's absolutely mind-blowing. He gave the copy of the ransom note to Mickey Rossner, one of the gangsters, and said, here, circulate this among your gangster friends and see if anybody recognizes it. Well, mm-hmm. guess what happens? 13 more ransom notes show up. Mm-hmm. You give the you give the most vital piece of evidence to gangsters. Yeah. This is all Lindbergh's call. Yeah. This is right. Lindbergh's call on this. Mm. More ransom notes show up, but none of the handwriting completely matched the ransom note that was left in the nursery. Mm. Wow. Let, let me switch for a minute because you got me going here. You know how I have about mm. this case. Let me talk about what occurred once the baby is missing. Betty Gow goes into the nursery at 10 o'clock to give the child his final medical rub down. This child has been safety pinned into the crib. This child is getting constant medicine. It appears to be there is something wrong with this baby. Okay. But Betty got the crib is empty. Betty says, okay, Colonel Lindbergh has the baby because Lindbergh's a practical joker. The month before down at Hopewell on a weekend, he'd hidden the baby in a closet, threw blankets over it, made the servants look for the child for three hours and then opened the closet, lifted the blankets, go, oh, look what I found here. Ha, ha, ha. I'm sure the servants were like, yeah, you bastard. So she goes down to the nursery and says to Lindbergh, Colonel, do you have the, do you have the baby? Lindbergh runs upstairs, bolts, looks in the crib, Anne comes in, his wife, and Betty Gower standing there. Lindbergh says, Anne, they have stolen our baby. Wow. Really? Jump really? to conclusions how much? About, <laughs> how about fan out? The kid got out of the crib and he's crawling mm-hmm. around here somewhere. How yeah. does he know that they have stolen our baby? And here is a vital clue. And Phil, Douglas got this wrong because I read, I read his account of this. Douglas played fast and loose with some of the facts to make his point. When Lindbergh is standing there, empty crib, Anna, Anna Lindbergh and Betty Gower standing there. Both women later testified they did not see a ransom note on the windowsill. And the nursery was searched because they're looking for the baby, of course. It was only 40 minutes later, Lindbergh, alone in the nursery, calls Betty Gow into the nursery and points to the windowsill. And there, mm-hmm. the ransom note. Which he doesn't touch. He doesn't touch it. And he asked, he asked Betty Gow to go down and get a knife to open it. I think he buys more time. And then when she comes mm-hmm. up with the knife, he says, no, I'm not going to open it. Now, I don't know. It, uh, you know, mm-hmm. if it had been, been my daughter, uh, I'd have ripped that note open. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Uh, no, he, sh- he shows remarkable restraint. 
in not mm-hmm. opening that. But again, and again, Douglas got this wrong, Phil. Neither woman saw the note. And mm-hmm. I don't know how you could miss it. Yeah. Yeah. It would be, I mean, because right. you, your, your eyes would be scanning the room, looking for just anything, you know, maybe mm-hmm. evidence of the kid oh, be even crawling all, or something. They all fanned out to look for the child. Um, yeah. It's a decent sized house, but I'll tell you this. If you've seen pictures, it looks a lot bigger on the outside than it is on the inside. Mm. Um, smallish rooms, narrow hallways, lots of closet doors. Sound really traveled in this house. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Only after Lindbergh calls Betty Gal to the nursery a half hour later, there's the ransom note sitting there. Mm-hmm. And, right. and, you know, I'm starting to really, you know. The well, antenna- at this point, the kidnapper just came back. The note, the original note was wet, so he had to rewrite it. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. So Lindbergh did so many suspicious things that night. He called his lawyer before he called the police, you know. And you know what I always like in true crime, you guys? It's when somebody does something the day of a crime that they've never done before, ever in their life. It seems unrelated. Right. But... What was Lindbergh doing that day? He was in New York. He is scheduled to be, this is huge for me, guys. Mm-hmm. He was scheduled to be a keynote speaker at the New York University alumni dinner that mm-hmm. night. He blows it off, doesn't call, drives mm-hmm. 90 minutes to Hopewell, New Jersey. And shortly after he arrives home, his child is kidnapped. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Loved to be adored. He loved to give public speeches. Even his biographers will say, Well, I never saw anything where he blew off a speaking engagement. But the mm-hmm. night his son was kidnapped, he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so uh... never done this before. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's weird. And, we don't and... know what else we don't know what else he was doing in New York that day at all. Right. They never mm-hmm. checked his alibi. And Phil, I think you did you read the book about the you know, the uh, eugenics guy and all that. I did not read a book about it, but I did. Uh, you're talking about Dr. Yeah. Coral. Yeah. Carol. Look, I read tries to tries to resurrect Lindbergh's movements in New York that day. And some of it's very shocking, but blowing off being the keynote speaker. think that People came there to see, to hear the other people speak. Heck no. Right. He blew it off, and his son is kidnapped shortly after he gets home. I yeah. got a time with that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I mean, it's just like it's out of character. It's you know, the public, the public loved to celebrate him as well. It was a, it, that's why it was a crime of the century, I guess. You know, it's a, some people draw parallels to the OJ case, you know, and. So that all that all comes together. To, it's an opportunity that uh, someone like him would not have passed up unless it was mm-hmm. absolutely. And it would have been such a good alibi if he, you know, was involved. Absolutely. But I mean, even but even so, he needed to come home for some reason, you know. But but he immediately took control of this investigation. The FBI, but he invited cranks, tipsters, mediums, gangsters. He blocked every logical police procedure. He he replaced solid investigative procedure with amateur methods. He obscured the trail and he created false leads away from New Jersey. I mean, it seemed like he was trying to create deceptive clues to mislead the police. Yeah. You know, they had a, they had a plan to, uh, I'm sorry, he had a plan, at least the New York police, they wanted to put something in the mailboxes where the ransom notes were coming from like a, mm-hmm. something to hold mail so uh-huh. it didn't go down into the box and they were going to stake out 13 mailboxes and every time someone came up they were going to rush up and and, and and pull the thing out and see if it was a ransom note if it was they were going to follow the person mm-hmm. Lindbergh said again no way are you going to do that I will shoot any policeman I see doing this. And sure enough, the very next couple of days, one of those mailboxes yielded a ransom note. Yeah. Yeah. What is this guy doing? Mm. Seriously, does he want to get his son back? He kept saying, I'm doing all this. I'm keeping the police out. I'm in charge of this because my only concern is the safety of my son. Mm. Hear this. 
Never once in 13 ransom notes was the child threatened. Not one time did they say, we'll kill your son. Yeah. Good care. They even said they, they saw the list of medications in the paper and they were giving medications. Child was never threatened. Yeah. Her whole deal was, oh, I can't have my child killed by getting the police involved. It's just, you, you, you start to see this thread of deceit right, and really bizarre actions on his part. So it suggested that the fact that he did not, when there was a ransom, when the ransom was uh, requested, he did not demand any evidence that his child no proof of life. Was, li- was alive. They did send a sleep suit, mm. which was a common variety, oh okay. gosh, onesie or whatever. Mm-hmm. That was pretty much it. Okay. Mm-hmm. He went with that. And yeah. by the way, it wasn't Lindbergh's money, the 50,000, it was his banks. Mm. So, you know, um, when Lindbergh was asked after the first failed ransom drop, if he would put 50,000 up of his own money for a second try, he flatly refused, you know, yeah. see, that's just one of those little details everybody forgets, but there is mm. so much stuff pointing to him. Yeah. And, let me, if I may, there's so much to talk about here, you guys. There really is. And mm-hmm. we're going to try to keep this at, at, what, an hour, an hour and a half at best? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, yeah. Save some for next time. But yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I always like the forgotten witness. And we have one in this case. And his name was Ben Lupica. He was a 19-year-old Princeton University student and a neighbor of Lindbergh's. Not that Lindbergh had many neighbors. But the night of the kidnapping, around 7 o'clock, Lupica is stopping at a bank of mailboxes, and I have a photo of this, near the bottom of the Lindbergh driveway. This is the night of the kidnapping. He's just getting the mail for his family. There's like six mailboxes there. And he sees a car pull around the bend coming toward the Lindbergh driveway, and it suddenly stops when the driver sees Ben Lupica. He described this car as a green car with sections of a ladder across the top and New Jersey plates. Now, if it's Haltman, he's got New York plates. How Haltman would even know where they lived is beyond me. Seriously, how he would know that. New Jersey plates, lone driver, green car. The driver did not move forward until Ben Lupica left. And the next morning, when the word of the kidnapping came out, Mm-hmm. Ben Lupica went to the Hopewell, talked to some police, told the story, and they took him right to Lindbergh in the mansion. Okay, mm-hmm. the baby's been gone since the previous night. He said, Colonel, here's the young man who saw the car with the driver and the ladders. Mm-hmm. And Ben Lupica, in an interview before his death, said, Lindbergh could not get away from me fast enough. He said, that's fine. I got to go see what's going on with Anne. Boom, he's out mm-hmm. of there. Did not wish to talk to this young man whatsoever. Lupica was called to testify at the trial, but never actually did. They never brought him in. He said Mm. the man he saw did not resemble Hauptman. Was asked, did he resemble Lindbergh? Inconclusive. Right. The level of participation in the investigation by Lindbergh is like unprecedented. Yeah, it's like yeah. you're thinking of almost like an episode of Columbo where he's walking yeah. side by side with the guy. You know, to, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about yeah, that? Too bad Columbo wasn't involved. Yeah, right. I, I love Columbo. Would have. You know, I could just see Columbo breaking down Lizzie Borden that day. You know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 There's a sense of sadness dead, about doing it. Yeah. <laughs> baby in the woods. Some of the measurements didn't quite match up, and the coroner himself said. You could give me a million dollars and I could not identify this child. But Lindbergh made a positive identification based on the toes and remnants of a sleep shirt that, that Betty Gal may or may not have put on him. That was it. And he said, I'm perfectly satisfied that this is my child. And guess what he did then? He ordered the body to be immediately cremated. Of course. The, the best piece of evidence besides the note. There's mm-hmm. nothing more eloquent than the murdered body of the victim. It speaks. Yeah. And by the way, Colonel, maybe your wife might like to give her firstborn son a Christian burial, do you think? They tried to talk him out of it. No way. They cremated that child within an hour after the identification. 
Oh, Jesus. That is just unconscionable. Yeah. Yeah. Not only for your wife, but for the investigation. Now, why is this guy acting? Now, I don't want to get too graphic, but I did read that the child may have been vivisected as part of a eugenics. And the implication was as part of some sort of eugenics. This is getting a little off in the weeds, but. That's a little in the weeds. Um, Eugenic uh, studies. Definitely trauma to the skull. A lot of the uh, a lot of the body had been carried away by animals in the woods. Yeah. Uh, definitely had been ravaged. We're talking uh, we're talking two and a half months between the kidnapping and the finding of the body. Right. right. So, so a lot of things could have happened. Decomposure. In the end, I think it was the Lindbergh baby. Mm-hmm. But but consider this, and I glossed over this earlier. I have been on that road, and I've stopped my car with my wife, and we looked at where they where whoever carried this child went into the woods, it still looks almost exactly like it did in 1932. It's desolate. There's nothing there. But that baby was found halfway between Lindbergh's house and a farmhouse that he rented during the construction of the house so he could drive over there every day. Who would know this road like the back of his hand in the middle of the night more than mm-hmm. Colonel Lindbergh, who drove it back and forth for years while his house was being built. Mm-hmm. Right. How was some kidnapped gang going to find this spot to put that child in the middle of the night? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, this, this stuff just cries out to me about his involvement. Yeah. But, but then you look at someone like John Douglas, and John Douglas has been very clear about exonerating the Ramsey family from kidnapping Jean Bonnet. Mm-hmm. But, but guys, uh, Patsy Ramsey wrote that ransom note. Maybe, maybe I, John Douglas is that witness. You know what I mean? Sorry. The professional witness, kind of. John Douglas is the professional witness. Sort of in an abstract way, sort of. Well, no, I mean, like you know, he he gets on camera by saying, "Yeah, they didn't do it." Well, I mean, it's controversial. People want to interview him because. He's not going John with Douglas. the more popular posit. John Douglas, yeah. John um, Douglas, thank you. Yeah, well, he certainly exonerated the Ramses, and I don't know, you know, I'm, I'm probably the only writer that ever pointed out, well, Patsy wrote that note with her offhand. If you look at that note, you can see, try writing with your other hand. You can see how weird it is at first on the first page, and then it gets better and smoother. But why you write a three-page ransom note, I don't know. But Patsy wrote that note. So how can she be innocent? But yeah, why would she write that note? It means either she did it, John did it, or Burke did it. Right. Um, and I and I think seriously, it would probably maybe be the, the brother. Well, you know, because she's protecting her child. You know, Lisa, I'm, herself. I'm starting to come around to that. Burke yeah. was a weird kid. He cracked her in the head. Patsy set it up and did the strangling in the note. Yeah. Because, because you know, Burke was going down. But uh, Douglas has also poo-pooed any idea that Lindbergh was involved. And so have a lot mm-hmm. of other people. And I'm just like, are you serious? Do you, do yeah. you realize that the vast majority of children who are murdered and kidnapped are, are done so by a family member? Right. Come on. And you're willing to let him off the hook because he's Lindbergh? Yeah. Well, it seems to be a common theme going back to the actual time of the crime where he seemed to have a tremendous amount of uh, leverage or mm-hmm. control of the situation to the day. Phil, he ran that investigation. He ran it. Mm-hmm. At the trial, yeah. of, the, the, the thing, this gets so weirder and weirder. At Houtman's trial, mm-hmm. Lindbergh is sitting at the prosecution table with the prosecutors. The father of the victim is at the table with the prosecutors. And he's got a shoulder holster and a pistol. Wow. I'm, in a courtroom. Okay. Now I have to ask, is that even like legal? No. So that could be a mistrial. Definitely. If Hauptman had any kind of lawyer. Hauptman's lawyer was an alcoholic guy suffering from terminal syphilis. Uh, Main lawyer, though he did have another lawyer that believed in him. So probably a relative of mine. <laughs> you know, let, let's jump ahead. I mean, somebody had to pay for the Lindbergh baby, and it was Hauptman. They manufactured yeah. some evidence. I'm not going to get into the wood evidence on the ladder because Hauptman was a carpenter. He could have built a lot better ladder than that. 
but why, just mm -hmm. briefly, he, they do. Up? I've heard it suggested that he took lumber from his uh, attic. Why in the world yeah. would he go up into his his landlord's attic? He didn't own the property. Mm -hmm. Cannibalize one board to mm -hmm. finish mm -hmm. the ladder, even though he had tons of lumber in his garage. Why would he go up and take a piece of of wood out of there? Yeah. That no. And remember, the New York State Police were in that apartment for six weeks, and many witnesses said when they initially inspected the attic, there was no missing lumber. Six weeks later, there was a board missing. I, it just, I can refute almost every piece of evidence against Haltman, almost everyone. The two guys that said they saw him in Hopewell that day, the one guy was blind, the other guy was just a, a proverbial liar. He just wanted the reward. Yeah. Um, and consider with Hauptmann on death row, even even Douglas, Phil, said this gave him pause. Harold Hauptmann, Harold Hoffman, the, the governor of New York, he didn't like the way this conviction went. He's like, you guys are telling me for two and a half years it's a gang. And now you're saying this one guy did everything. Mm -hmm. it. Yeah. He goes to visit Hauptmann in the death house a week before Hauptmann's execution. He says, Bruno confess something confess anything blame fish blame somebody tell me anything and i will commute your sentence to life with a possibility of parole and you will get to see your wife and son you know Hauptman had a one-year-old son at the time mm. yeah oh hoffman said that Hauptman started to cry he mm. said i have nothing to confess and some magazine mm -hmm. offered a hundred thousand to confess that even if he was executed, if he would confess, they would give the money to Anna Hauptman and his son. Mm -hmm. yeah. And he went to his death silent when asked mm -hmm. if he had any last words in the death chamber. Mm -hmm. Nothing. So mm -hmm. railroaded to the he end. He did say right at the end, I think this is this is as close to a deathbed statement as you get. Mm -hmm. Two hours before his execution, this is a quote. You think when I die, it will be like a book I close, but the book, it will never close. Mm -hmm. Two hours before his death. Oh, that's a beautiful quote. I don't know about you guys. If, if I'm innocent, yeah. I probably take the deal because I yeah. can eventually prove myself. Hauptman mm. just cried and says, I have nothing to confess. Yeah. Right. Just yeah. completely decimated, Douglas, I guess, at that point. John Douglas said, wow, really? Yeah. About that. So I might have confessed just to give my family that money. Sure. He's going to be executed. Yeah. Anyway. Why not? Right. But no, he had ample opportunity to come clean. Uh, he did. He, he went under brutal interrogation up in mm -hmm. New York. Brutal. They beat the crap out of him. Mm. Never did he fold. Not one time. And what's he going to do? Bring that kid back up to his apartment with his wife, who's pregnant yeah. at that time? Is that what is, is that his plan? Mm -hmm. yeah, if you kidnap that child and you were Hauptman or you were a New York gang, mm -hmm. you head north. The guy who disposed of the body headed south. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could go on and on with details like that, but it just doesn't. None of this adds up. Mm -mm. I looked at a picture of Hauptman. In fact, I'm looking at it now. I've got my PowerPoint in front of me. It's a picture mm -hmm. of him holding his son, Manfred. Yeah. And I, here's what I wrote. Baby killer, question mark. Yeah. Peep, yeah. peep this. This, this, is, this, to me, is the crux of the case. And I don't know if we're close on time, but this might be a good ending thing. Mm -hmm. I did, yeah, it's 815. I, I, I did want to... I mm -hmm. want to let you finish your thought, but I did want to ask you a, a motive or why, if you make the assumption that, that Lindbergh himself was behind this, mm -hmm. you know. The child, the child was imperfect. Yeah. Okay. Eugenics. The child had rickets. The child mm -hmm. had a large head. There were no photos of the child after one year. And yet when he was kidnapped, he was one year, 10 months. None mm -hmm. of the photos in the paper were recent photos of this child. Where were the recent photos? There were none. Right. So something like that, I'm thinking. But what about even polio? Definitely rickets, uh, maybe encephalitis, possibly a waterhead baby. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the theories no go. Kinds of things. The theories go that Lindbergh killed him because he was imperfect. 
There was another theory that Lindbergh wanted him anonymously taken away to a, to a children's home and the kidnapping was botched and the child was dropped. There's also credible evidence that Lindbergh's sister-in-law, whom he dated, this is, this is Anne, Anne Lindbergh's older sister, uh, Lindbergh dated her and threw her over for the middle sister. She was at Hopewell the weekend before the crime, and she was alone with that child for an hour or so. The thought is that she could have killed this child in a rage on Sunday. Haldeman's not going to let the world know his sister-in-law killed his child. They decide to stay over, come up with a ruse, and manufacture a kidnapping. Because this is this is what I wanted to say. For almost, what do we got? 1920, 1921, 1932. For 89 years, Phil and Lisa have been looking for a kidnapper when we should have been looking for a baby killer. Yeah. This this is a murder disguised as a kidnapping, in my opinion. Right. Well, I mean, the, the, the thing that speaks to Lindbergh's character that I took out of it was uh, his Nazi sympathizing. Oh. He lived in Germany during the Third Reich for a period of time. You know, it, he certainly did, Phil. You know, it's funny. When they moved to Germany, Judge Hoffman had just mm-hmm. announced that he was reopening the Lindbergh investigation. Hauptmann mm-hmm. hadn't been executed yet. Wife and his new son left on a freighter at midnight to go to Europe and told no one they were going to do it. And they stayed there for three or four years. Right. He hobnobbed with Hitler and Goering and all of them. He absolutely did. Mm. And some of you may not know this, but in the 50s, Lindbergh fathered uh, five children by three different German women. Mm-hmm. The DNA tests proved it. Was he trying to start his own little master race? Wow. Well, and, and there was also some weird little things about him that he would, he loved to pull pranks on people, although they're the types of oh pranks that not very many people would enjoy because they were kind of sadistic and cruel. They were horrible. <laughs> yeah. the, he put kerosene in a guy's canteen when he was a bush pilot. The guy came in drunk and woke him up. He almost mm-hmm. died. Amelia Earhart was visiting them one time before her mm-hmm. disappearance. And she was talking with Anna Anna Lindbergh, Ann Lindbergh, and Lindbergh came up behind his wife with a pitcher of water and slowly mm-hmm. poured it over her head while she was talking to Amelia Earhart. Amelia Earhart wrote about this, and yeah. Ann, Ann Lindbergh didn't even react. Right. Hmm. And then when she left the table, she got up and dumped a, a, a pitcher of buttermilk on Lindbergh's head. <laughs> well, at least she got him back. That's just funny. Yeah, but it's, just, it's just weird stuff. Yeah. Yeah. But that's that'd be humiliating, though. I mean, because mm-hmm. Earhart was a dignitary. Didn't they call her Lady Lenny, Lady Lindley, or something? Yeah, Lady Lindy. She's having an she... intense conversation with Anna, with with Anne Lindbergh, and and Lindbergh pours water over her head. Right. So yeah. I've heard people extrapolate that to mean well, maybe maybe he was trying to pull a prank by you know pretending that his child had been abducted and actually went through the motions of climbing that ladder. And Here's the scenario. They have dropped him. <laughs> Let's talk about that one real quick. Haldeman mm-hmm. blows off the, 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 the dinner speaking engagement for whatever reason earlier than they thought. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, because he was supposed to speak. Right. But, but, but the people in the house don't know he's there. He pulls up. And he doesn't pull way up the driveway. There's a construction ladder nearby. He uses the ladder. And this is a guy who used to walk on wings. He was a daredevil. If anybody could climb this ladder, take this kid up and down it, it's him. But let's say he goes in and he's going to take the child out of the nursery because he told nobody to go in. And then he was going to come home later with the child and go, hey, look who I found in New York today. But he drops the child coming down the ladder. The ladder breaks with the 40 extra pounds of the baby. And he panics. And he drives the road he knows like the back of his hand and he hides that baby in the woods. Yeah. That's the theory. Yeah. And then he comes home and and Ann, Ann Lindbergh said he honked the horn when he came home. Mm-hmm. He goes, well, he never did that before. Right. I think he was home a half hour beforehand and possibly accidentally killed his son and covered it up all in that half hour. Yeah. Because the body was only uh, less than two miles from the house when it was found. Right. Yeah, so that's another that's another scenario there. Practical mm-hmm. joke awry. 
Lindbergh's biographers are unanimous on this. After the death of his son, he never pulled another practical joke in his life. I mean, I could go on and on, but I don't think I should. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, we're getting pretty long on this, and uh, yeah. Well, I think it's been great. It's been a great hour. Yeah, I've mean, well, those visits about this one, as you can tell. Mm. Yeah, and but, people but should. You're passionate. I think that's you know and, good. And, and as always, being on the crime scene, being there. You know, my wife and I spent three hours in that house, and we're walking around. Mm-hmm. We're in there a half hour and my wife nudges me and whispers inside job. <laughs> mm-hmm. I walked outside with one of the guys. It's a home for wayward youth now. Okay. I walked outside with one of the counselors. I said, mm-hmm. how dark does it get around here at night? And he goes, very dark. He said, imagine how dark it would have been in 1932. Yeah. Yet flashlights were seen that night. Nothing of the kind. Mm-hmm. To, yeah. to say that Richard Houtman drove two hours from the Bronx, mm-hmm. uh, not even sure this they, these people would even be there. Right. And, mm-hmm. and somehow killed this kid. Yeah. So was, Houtman, yeah. was Houtman Cemetery John? Mm-hmm. Maybe. Maybe. Was, was Fish Cemetery John? Okay, he's an extortionist. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's a prison term. Yeah. But who killed the baby? Yeah. That, I would stake my true crime reputation. It was not Hauptman. Yeah. Did he have something to do with the extortion? Could be. Could be. Well, I'm I'm getting parched now. All right. Let me let me. Yeah. Uh, we'll close it out by saying that you're <laughs> going to have these. Uh, you're going to be uh, doing these community to university classes within mm-hmm. the next month or so. I think In October. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and you want to plug that? People should sign up for that. What I really want to plug is. Summer's almost gone. The revised second edition hardcover mm-hmm. on my website. I'm going to be I'm going to be really cutting the price on that since it's an older book, and I'm going to start signing all the copies. Oh, cool! My Thanks. ebook is going crazy. Of Summer's Almost Gone. Mm-hmm. Leave the money Amazon's giving me for this ebook, but the right. hardcover is not moving now. Mm. Huh. Um, well, and and a lot, you know, I mean. Really, a lot of people don't have as much time to sit and read a hardcover book. It takes me way longer now to Shame. read a hardcover than it did when I was younger. Shame on those millennials. Or those- I know. <laughs> well, and, and what it is, is most of my reading time is during, you know, I mean, I read this thing that most couples have an average of two and a half hours that they actually spend together on a daily basis. Yep. And if I'm sitting there with an open book... Right. You know, Philip gets all, you know, what about me? Well, we had both. Which is fine. We we, we did get a hard copy, which I really yeah. like because uh-huh. the, the pictures are much more clear. And it's, it's right. Uh, do, you have the, do you have the second edition, Phil? I believe I so. Think, I don't know. I we'll second edition 2020. Yeah, we, we bought it. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. We'll have to look. I mean, the first edition, uh, we had the delay with all the pictures that came at the last minute. And the first edition went to print with... There were some mistakes and errors. Revised edition's pretty pristine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's quite a story what happened in Cincinnati in 1966. So, yeah. uh, you know, I'll be running some specials. We're looking to move hardcover books. Mm-hmm. So uh, appreciate the opportunity to plug that. Sure. All right. And, have, and of course, all your socials. Yep. You know, if yep. you want to be contacted at all. <laughs> yep. I'll we'll put that in the yeah. show notes. Uh, okay media and all and you know i'm hoping we do a few a uh, few more of these the beverly Giraz case in cleveland mm-hmm. oh yeah you cannot help but get obsessed with that case mm-hmm. when you realize the tiny window of time the killer had to kill her and slip through to safety right yeah. it's an insanely tight timeline a broad daylight mid-afternoon people all over the place and that's a crazy crazy crime Really yeah, I, I would like to talk about that one. I, I dove into that for a couple of days when I saw posts on your Facebook. Well, sounds good. <laughs> all right. So is it going well with you guys on the podcasts? Yeah. Yeah. We got mm-hmm. all kind. We got them all lined up. Yeah. We got yeah, like, the next busy. two months of podcasts. So we'll try. Yeah. To... There, there was a point where I'm. It's like, honey, how do you feel about two podcasts in a day? No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, um, I love you, hon, but no. Yeah. Let's try another one next month or something. Okay. Okay. Sounds great. 
And I've only got about a hundred cases we could do. Yeah. <laughs> right. We are taking a trip for my birthday in October, just so you know. So yeah, you know. We'll work uh, around that. My wife's birthday's on October the eighteenth. Oh, uh, I'm the twenty third. Boy, that's close. Wow. Me and uh Weird Al Yankovic and Dwight Yoakum. So you know what it's like to be with a Scorpio. Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, Libra, actually. Yeah. yeah. Actually, she's on the cusp there, I think. So well, I'm the actual date of the cusp, the one where in some scorp in some horoscopes, uh, it's the 23rd, and in some it's you know the 20. I'm a Scorpio, yeah. and sometimes I'm a Libra. Okay. So, right. but yeah, it's very close to the cusp, and she probably does have Scorpio tendencies. Right. Get yourself something to drink. Have a good night. We'll talk to you again. Okay. Phil, you're gonna you you'll you'll post that on uh, Brick Unlocked, maybe. Yeah, yeah, I'll I'll let you know and I'll post there as well. You had another one on there about the uh, Hunley McQuarrie thing. Um, yeah, I'd have to uh, I'd have to brush up on that one if we ever did it. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's from my sister. She's really interested in that because she worked at that Mainliner on Right Pike. And but I mean, when I was looking in, that would be one to do if we combine it with maybe a couple other cases as well from Cincinnati. It mm-hmm. seemed like it was cold as ice. The case yes. is just going nowhere. And I thought, well, maybe maybe he just doesn't, you know, there's not enough meat on the bone for that one. So That would be bad for two nine-year-olds to oh, yeah, disappear. Was, were they from yeah. the same family or were they separate families? Uh, two different, just friends. Okay. Um, so two families had to go through that. Yeah. I yeah, mean. That case, Hunley McQuarrie disappearance. Queen City Gothic had 13 chapters. That was mm-hmm. the fourth. One. It was the first one out. Oh, mm. I see. Yeah, it almost made it. So, uh, okay, guys. All right. Okay. Well, have a great I'm week. Posted, Phil. You too, Lisa. All right. Okay. Bye. 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 Hey, listeners. It's Lisa and Phil from Yeah, Uh Huh. How are we doing? We love feedback. Please use our socials to let us know what you think. We have social. Twitter. Yeah, uh-huh pod. Instagram. Yeah, uh-huh pod. Facebook. Yeah, uh-huh pod. Notice, Notice the a pattern. pattern. Website. www.yeah-uh-huh.com. So let us know. Hit us back. Have a great week.